3: You're listening to the Season 5 reboot of Breakdown, The MacGyver Murder Case, a podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For additional information, photos, videos, and documents relating to the MacIver prosecution, please go to ajcbreakdown.com. Join our Breakdown Facebook group for continuing conversations about the case. And follow us on Twitter at AJCBreakdown and at AJCCourts.
0: Previously on Breakdown. My concern is for
4: everyone's well-being. Mr. MacGyver and firearms don't mix well anymore.
5: The state's motion, (laughs) and I laughed because it was the state's motion to continue because they wanted to prevent the defense from being ineffective. I mean, as a defense attorney, it's almost offensive. It's like, thank you for doing my job protecting my client, the same client you're trying to put in
3: prison for the rest of his life. I believe a jury is really gonna need to have a story which explains and is supported by the fact why Tex MacGyver wanted his wife either harmed or dead.
0: Welcome back. Before we plunge back into the story of Tex MacGyver, I want to tell you about something that recently happened to me. I agreed to retrace the MacIver's route on the night of the killing with a TV crew. Being TV, they rented a white Ford Expedition, just like the one in which Tex McIver shot his wife. First of all, the SUV. This was the biggest damn car I've ever climbed into. I mean big. I could be wrong, but I think I saw a pipeline leading from the car directly to the Alaskan wilderness. At least we were using domestic oil. The TV people had asked me to drive. I declined. So, we're driving down the expressway in downtown Atlanta, and we exit down the ramp and onto Edgewood Avenue, as Tex and Diane did that night. It's been said that Tex had worried that the people milling about down there were maybe Black Lives Matter protesters. That's when Tex told Diane and Danny Joe to give him his gun. Our reconstruction was pretty authentic. As we sat at a light off the exit ramp, a homeless man began shouting at us that he was hungry. I mean, shouting. And the more we ignored him, the more he screamed and flailed his arms. The TV reporter made note of the guy. I mean, you often see homeless people in downtown Atlanta, but you don't often see them behaving so aggressively. What should we do, grab a gun? No, he didn't seem truly threatening. And we didn't have a gun. Not that we needed one. Actually, we just drove off when the light changed. If he'd started beating on the windows, which he didn't, we probably would have pulled away before we got the green light. End of adventure. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Careful listeners will remember that Craig Schneider had joined me in the booth for the first three episodes of this season. So, you may be asking, Bill, where's Craig? Well... With the tip of the hat to a popular podcast parody, Craig Dunn disappeared. After a distinguished career of 21 years, Craig is no longer at the AJC. He's gone back home to New York City, and I miss him. For one thing, he knows this case backward and forward, and it was great to have an expert sitting right next to me. But we'll soldier on. It's what Craig would have wanted. So once you recover from Craig's absence, you're probably asking, Why did you call this episode Muddy Waters? We'll get into that shortly. But first, we need to do some recap. I know, binge listeners are now cursing my name. We don't need no stinking recap. But there are tens of thousands of listeners who last heard from us in October. Because they're high-caliber listeners, most of them have perfect recall. But for those who don't, we're going to go back over a few important points. Plus, this recap will contain critical new information. So. Please stop complaining? Claude Tex MacGyver is scheduled to stand trial a week from today for the murder of his wife, Diane. Prosecutors say MacGyver intentionally shot his wife through the back. MacGyver says it was an accident. Here's what he told our partners and friends at WSB TV shortly after the shooting I just miss my wife so much. It was the perfect marriage. I cry every day and I miss her every day. The
6: reality is that there were, in my judgment, hugely compelling facts that point to accident. I mean, this is just... You have to have a motive for
0: murder. You have to have an intent. There's none of that. None of that. She was my life partner. So Tex, who was 74, and Diane, who was 64, and their friend Danny Joe Carter spent the pleasant weekend at the MacIver's Ranch near Lake Oconee. That's about 75 miles east of Atlanta. They drove back to Atlanta on a Sunday night in September 2016, with Danny Joe behind the wheel. They were headed to Tex and Diane's luxury condominium in Buckhead, the wealthiest district in Atlanta. Danny Joe told police she was driving because Diane had drunk wine when they stopped for dinner at Longhorn Steakhouse. In fact, we now know from toxicology reports that Diane could not have legally driven the car. Her blood alcohol content was .108, well beyond the .08 threshold in Georgia for drunk driving. It seems clear that Diane not only drank at the restaurant, but also in the Ford Expedition as it lumbered down the highway to Atlanta. They were going to take I-20 to the downtown connector, but there was road work. So they would exited onto Edgewood. That's where they encountered some African Americans on foot. Tex told police that the people, quote, rose the hair on the back of your neck, unquote. So Tex asked for the gun, and Diane handed it over. Danny Joe drove on. They traveled north to Piedmont Avenue and 12th Street, near one of the main entrances to Atlanta's Piedmont Park. That's where the gun went off. Once they realized that Diane was shot, Tex and Danny Joe failed to call 911. Instead, they decided to drive Diane to Emory Hospital, almost four and a half miles away, where she later died. We now know there was a fire station staffed with paramedics about 300 yards from where Diane was shot. 300 yards. But those paramedics never had a chance to help Diane because Tex didn't call 911. Nor was she taken to Grady Memorial Hospital, a Level 1 trauma center. If you get shot in Atlanta, you want to go to Grady. The Emory University police did call 911 when the wounded Diane arrived at the University Hospital's emergency room. The dispatch tapes show how confused things were. Atlanta 911, Operator 3323, what is the address of your emergency? Hey, Atlanta, this is Emory Police, Dispatch 46. Okay. Um, We need to have a unit respond to our ER in reference to a gunshot victim uh, that took place on Piedmont near Grady. On
1: Piedmont near Grady Hospital?
0: Uh Uh-huh. But they ended up in RER on the Clifton campus. So at 1364 Clifton Road, the gunshot entered the left portion of the back.
1: In the back? Okay.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. The confusion at length is cleared up. I'm sorry, hold on one second. Okay. Okay. Now they're saying that it occurred near Piedmont Park, not Grady. Not Grady? Yep. So it occurred on Piedmont, near Piedmont Park. Okay. Okay. Make more sense, all right. It makes a lot more sense. <laughs> when we last talked, Judge Robert McBurney had decided to delay the trial four months. Because of the delay, the judge gave Tex a $750,000 bond, allowing him to get out of jail after months of confinement. And to make bond, Tex had to post 10% of that, or $75,000. Days after the bond was set came the bombshell. Most of Tex's lawyers announced they were withdrawing from the case. After MacGyver paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees, the defendant, it seems, had run out of money. Indeed, at that point, he couldn't even afford to post bond. The last lawyer standing was Bruce Harvey, one of the sharpest members of the defense bar in Georgia. Harvey then recruited a lawyer that Breakdown listeners know well. Don Samuel, a resident legal expert, joined the legal team. I texted Samuel and asked, How can you defend MacIver and be our resident legal expert? Don's response? Clark Kent and Superman. Of course, Samuel will have to be the resident legal expert for MacIver now. As they say on TV, I'll see you in court, counselor. So Tex finally raised enough money to make bond on December the 11th, almost two months after the judge granted it. I was there when MacIver walked out of jail with a plastic bag of his belongings draped over his shoulder. Samuel was with him, and he, not Tex, answered our questions.
6: Oh, good evening, sir. How
0: do you feel to be out? It feels
6: great to be out. We're going home.
0: (laughs) Have anything to say, Tex? Not tonight. Tex then returned to his Buckhead condo, but it no longer contained the trappings of a wealthy power couple. Their building had four condos per floor, And the couple had knocked down a wall and turned two condos into one. I've told you about this condo before, but here's some more. In a locked closet, Diane had kept 125 furs. The couple had about 300 bottles of wine. An entire bedroom had been converted to closet space for Diane's expansive wardrobe. Diane's estate sold the condominium a month after Tex moved back into it. He's now living in a new condo in suburban Cobb County. Okay. Let's talk about Muddy Waters. I want to set the stage for the trial by introducing you to the lawyers. And you're in for a treat. These guys, they're good. We'll start with Clinton Keith Rucker, the Chief Assistant District Attorney for the Atlanta Judicial Circuit. The first thing you notice about Clint Rucker is he's a large man, an imposing presence in the courtroom. Here's Don Samuel talking about Rucker back when Samuel was our resident legal expert. I've known Clint Rucker for... 20, 25 years, I've tried a number of murder cases
2: uh, against him. He is uh, a fabulous trial lawyer. Um, he knows juries better than anybody I've ever tried a case against. He is dynamic in the courtroom. He is uh, does not come across uh, as an intellectual. He is not uh, professorial. Um, but he is mesmerizing. He really is. Um, he always has the, the mannequin in the courtroom. Um, he always acts out things in front of the jury. He will jump up and down on the mannequin if it's a stomping case, he tear it to shreds and the cotton will come pouring out of it. If it's a shooting case, he will have the wooden dowels going in and out of the mannequin showing the direction of the bullets in and out. He is a fabulous and formidable uh, lawyer against, uh, against whom anybody has to face in a, in a trial.
0: He's, he's as good as they get. Atlanta defense attorney Bruce Morris, who is following the case, says if you close your eyes, Rucker will seem to be in a pulpit. He's just like a Baptist preacher over there telling the congregation, this is what the evidence is, and I need, I need an amen. So here's where the muddy water comes from. It's Rucker's trademark. Here he is, briefly describing it during a hearing last year. You know, in some of my closing arguments, I call that muddy water.
3: Designed to deflect away from what is really the truth.
1: Everyone knows about Clint, that he carries around this um, jar, and it's this jar of sandy water that he uses as his example of a reasonable doubt and how he'll, at the beginning of a closing argument, have that, he'll shake that jar and make it all cloudy. Um, but by the end of his closing, it'll be clear.
0: That's Fonnie Willis talking about Rucker's trademark. I watched for months in 2014 as Willis tried the Atlanta Public Schools test cheating case alongside Rucker. Now she's leaving the DA's office to run for judge in Fulton County.
1: At the beginning, if you have um, some confusion about the facts of the cases and all the evidence that's come in that's complex, by the time you get to the end of his closing argument, the water is clear for you because he is able to make um, just a concise argument that makes sense.
0: Don Samuel says Rucker's muddy water gambit was effective the first several times he heard it. Every closing argument's the same. He always begins with a bottle of muddy water, and he
2: says, you know, the defense lawyer's just trying to muddy up the case, and he shakes up that bottle with muddy water, and it gets really muddy, and then he puts it on the jury rail, and at the end of his hour closing argument, all the mud has settled, and it's all clear, and he says to the jury, But you see, when you really pay attention to the evidence, all that mud disappears, and it's as clear as can be. This defendant is guilty. I've seen Clinton Rucker do that so many times that the last case I had with him, I brought in a bottle of, uh, of muddy water just to preempt his closing argument.
0: What Samuel doesn't say is that Rucker's muddy water is new and novel to every juror who sees it. Did I say Rucker's a big guy? Here's Willis.
1: Yes, he is a big man, um, and so his physical size, as well as his intonation of his voice, as well as the volume of his voice, all commands a courtroom. Most of what he is doing is making people like him, which is important for your jury to like you and to trust you.
0: As the Chief Assistant DA in Georgia's most populous county, Rucker has handled some very high-profile prosecutions. Here's a sampling. The State versus Raynard Cook, in which Cook was charged with the murder of his mother a sitting Fulton County judge. Josephine Holmes Cook was shot in the back. The verdict? Guilty. In State versus James Sullivan, Rucker prosecuted a millionaire who hired a hitman to kill his wife, socialite Lita McClinton. The contract killer arrived at her door carrying a dozen long-stemmed pink roses and a handgun. Verdict? Guilty. Rucker sought the death penalty but didn't get it. In State versus Brian Nichols, Rucker prosecuted the notorious courthouse killer. Nichols, on trial for rape, subdued a deputy and took her gun. He then killed a judge and a court reporter and escaped, killing a deputy and later a federal agent. Verdict? Guilty. Again, Rucker asked for the death penalty but didn't get it. Fonnie Willis remembers trying her first case with Rucker.
1: He gave me a schedule, and when you think of a schedule, you think of a schedule that's like, this is what you're going to do from 9 to 5 or even 7 to 6. But the schedule was for 7 days a week of my life and what I was going to do every day of my life. Church is scheduled, breakfast is scheduled, and work is scheduled, and it's scheduled 7 days a week. And so I think people mistake that Clint just walks into a courtroom and he is great. That is not true. When Clint is in trial and in trial mode, and especially in these big cases, his whole life and his team's life, is going to be scheduled around trying a gaze.
0: Adam Abate will be second chair to Rucker on the prosecution.
5: Adam is very different than Clint.
0: That's Marietta defense attorney Ashley Merchant.
5: So Adam's style is going to be much more methodical. Um, Clint is much, is a very strong orator, and so he tends to just have this command of the courtroom where he uh, his speech, I mean, it's, it's almost like a sermon. And Adam's going to be much more I guess, technical with the law. And so I think you'll see him doing more of those types of witnesses.
0: Other members of the prosecution team are assistant DAs Salida Griffin and Kara Convery. You might remember Convery from our last season of Breakdown, a jury of his peers. We'll be right back. Now, the defense. Bruce Harvey is one of the most distinctive members of the Atlanta Defense Bar. He has worn a braided ponytail down his back for decades. Dragons are tattooed on his back, and a snake seems to slither out from one of the cuffs on his shirt. The license plate on one of his cars, not the Tesla, reads, Acquit. A Harley Davidson sits in the lobby of his fashionable law office loft in downtown Atlanta. It's a gift from Hell's Angels for his work representing one of their leaders. Bruce Harvey is a great trial lawyer. That's another Bruce in the defense bar, Bruce Morris. He is a true
7: entertainer and has tremendous imagination. Thinks very quickly on his feet and is just so damn likable. Juries like him, judges for the most part like him, prosecutors like him in spite of not wanting to like him. He can be the ringmaster and that brings usually a smile to many many
0: jurors which makes them inclined to to like him when he stands up harvey is an intense sometimes volatile presence in court the subjects of his cross-examinations often leave the stand feeling as if they've been torn apart and he has a short fuse like the time he ripped off his tie and belt midway through trial in douglas county and squared off with a prosecutor the fight never happened instead Harvey was jailed for contempt. That wasn't the first time, nor the last. Once he was jailed for contempt for calling a judge, quote, a stooge of the white male ruling class, unquote. Another time, he even spent his 50th birthday in jail for contempt. He was in the thick of two of the highest-profile trials in Atlanta history, the murder trial of NFL All-Pro linebacker Ray Lewis and the Gold Club racketeering case. Ray Lewis and two members of his honorage were charged with murder after Super Bowl XXXIV in Atlanta in 2000. A fight broke out outside a Buckhead club in the hours after the game. Two men were stabbed to death. Don Samuel was a member of Lewis's defense team. Harvey represented Reginald Oakley, who was riding in the stretch limo with the football star. I have to tell you, In my years of covering trials in Georgia, I may have never seen a more effective cross-examination than the one Harvey unleashed on the Fulton County Medical Examiner. By the time the M.E. left the stand, it was clear. Oakley hadn't stabbed anyone, and he was acquitted of all charges. Lewis pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor during the trial. The next year, he was the most valuable player in the Super Bowl. Now he's in the NFL Hall of Fame. Then there's the racketeering trial involving Atlanta's infamous Gold Club, a strip club mecca for conventioneers and easy marks who got fleeced out of thousands of dollars in bogus charges. Prosecutors said the club had mob connections. Pro athletes went there, too, and had sex with dancers inside the club. Harvey represented dancer Jackie Bush, one of a number of Gold Club employees indicted in the case. The trial had a lot of high points, but Harvey hit the highest one during his opening statement. The ponytailed barrister snuck a boombox into the federal courtroom, hiding it under the defense table. When it was his turn to address the jury, Harvey switched on the song that his client loved to dance to, Human Nature by Madonna. Then he hopped up on the defense table, whipped off his jacket, and began a mock table dance. He, he really did.
6: I dance on the table because dancing is my life. And <laughs> I just wanted to see my, everybody to see my moves. That's
0: Harvey, tongue-in-cheek.
6: And to distinguish, clearly distinguish my client from everybody else that was on trial at that particular time. They were all decision makers. They were people who had authority. They were people that made decisions about what to do and how to do it and how to charge and what to charge and whom to charge. And Jackie Bush was a dancer. And that's all she did. And that's all she was responsible for. And the only decision she had to make was, what was her song going to be? And we, we did. I, I did dance to her song.
0: When the inevitable objection erupted from the prosecution, the judge told Harvey to get down off the table. Harvey obeyed. But then he sauntered into the courtroom gallery, sat down next to a guy who'd come to watch the openings. Harvey snuggled up to him, put his hand on the guy's leg, and then asked, Will you buy me some champagne, big boy?
7: I had a grin from
0: ear to ear. That's Bruce Morris, who represented one of Jackie Bush's co-defendants. So he had a ringside seat to Harvey's performance. When he stood up and
7: became his client, I thought it was incredibly imaginative. He demonstrated something to the jury that was better than just saying, my client's a dancer. He became his client, and the jurors ate it up psychologists tell you people get tired of listening to lawyers talk, but when you demonstrate something, they can't help take their eyes off of what you're doing. And he just had the jury at the palm of his hand to the extent that the prosecutor just
0: (laughs) had to jump up and object to get the judge to make him stop. Uh, But it was great. Harvey's client wound up pleading guilty mid-trial to concealing a felony. She got probation. Don Samuel is one of the most accomplished lawyers in Georgia. Yet some prosecutors and judges still call him Don Samuels. Samuel, that's singular, is a walking encyclopedia of criminal defense law. He has written books that summarize and interpret Georgia court rulings. It's not uncommon to see those books on the shelves of defense attorneys. They're also owned by prosecutors and judges. Samuel says he feels more comfortable in a courtroom than just about anywhere else. He does have a certain ease and understated confidence when trying cases or arguing court motions and appeals, but Samuel's calm demeanor quickly changes when he enters a crowded elevator, which is pretty much impossible to avoid in the Fulton County Courthouse. The claustrophobic attorney says he gets nervous just thinking about confined places. He's often paired with his law partner, famed Atlanta defense attorney Ed Garland. Together, the two have represented Ray Lewis, former NFL star running back Jamal Lewis, Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger, and the rapper T.I. Samuel is married to author Melissa Faye Green. She wrote Praying for Sheet Rock, The Temple Bombing, and other books. They have nine children, four by birth, four from Ethiopia, and one from Bulgaria. Here's Bruce Harvey.
6: He's the smartest lawyer, period, that I know. He's well-respected by everybody, and he's just a pleasure to work with, and I'm honored that he agreed to join the defense team, and, and I know that, um, that it, it can do nothing but help Tex, and that's our, that's our objective here.
7: Don Samuel is, is one of the deans of the defense bar. That's the other Bruce you've been hearing from, Bruce Morris. He excels in making the points supported by the law, uh, and it's always a good sign in a Georgia courtroom when the judge has his book when Don cites a case, the judge can can know uh, that he's citing the right case for the right point. Don is not theatrical. He doesn't act with hyperbole. He's just very straightforward, very direct, very calm, and doesn't exaggerate. You know, he says it like it is, and you people know they can count on what he says. It'll be a great trial, I'm telling you. There will
0: be high points, I, I, I assure you
7: both in front of the jury and when the jury
0: is out. The defense will be assisted by attorney Amanda Clark Palmer and investigator Richard Hyde. Hyde once served as an investigator for the state's Judicial Watchdog Commission. He made cases against dozens of judges who wound up stepping down for unethical, even criminal, behavior. McIver's defense team had planned to use Joe Burton as their crime scene expert. You might remember Burton from our second season involving the hot car case. I'm sad to say that last October, federal prosecutors charged Burton with illegally distributing opioids, and they accused him of trading drugs for sexual favors. He's no longer part of MacGyver's defense team. Finally, there's the man who must ride herd on all that legal talent, Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney. On the bench, and sometimes in his written orders, McBurney displays a rare dry wit. He also doesn't hesitate to ask a witness a question if he thinks it'll clarify a point. Some judges have what I call robitus, a dictatorial air. You know, this is my courtroom, and you are under my control. McBurney's not like that at all. He can be conversational, even self-deprecating. And he does this really unusual thing. He lets jurors ask questions to witnesses.
4: Rather than send jurors back with a blindfold over one eye because they only got to see what the lawyers thought they should see, why not lift that blindfold and give them as much as is legally appropriate to give them, again, legally appropriate questions they might
0: ask. That's Judge McBurney who explained his philosophy to the AJC during an interview last year. The practice is so unusual, I can find only one other judge in the state who does it, I wrote a story about it last year. You can find that story on our Breakdown Facebook page. If you haven't joined the group, we'd love to have you. So they're deciding the case with
4: full information. When you have someone's life at stake, they could go to jail for 20 years, or it's a $100 million verdict. Why would we want to limit the information they get? That's reason number one. Reason number two is that We are not in the 1880s anymore. This is the era of Google. And it's foolish to think that if jurors don't have an outlet, they might not try to scratch that itch. Cases are having to be retried all the time across the country because jurors have accessed information outside the supervision of the judge and the attorneys because someone throws out a term and they don't explain it or it's an automobile accident. And for whatever reason, they just, the, the picture they put up is kind of fuzzy. And so the jurors will just go find the intersection and look at it themselves, or call up Google Maps and look at the
0: intersection. This can be avoided if jurors can ask questions, McBurney says.
4: Jurors love it. And in general, after it's happened a few times, the attorneys appreciate it because they get to see, um, oh, this is what the jurors are interested in. And what to me proves it the most is after they ask it of witness one, the jurors do, guess who
0: asks it of witness two? The lawyers do. Now jurors don't just stand up and start firing questions at the witness. McBurney asks jurors whether they have any questions before he dismisses the witness. They write down what they want to know and McBurney reviews the questions to make sure they're legally appropriate. He then shares them with the prosecution and the defense, which can object if they want. At length, it is the judge and not the juror who poses the questions to the witness. And the attorneys then have the right to follow up on the witness's answers. You get 12 people, 12
4: sets of eyes, they're paying attention. This is all they have to do right now. And they think of things that the attorneys haven't thought of. And so those types of questions, perfectly
0: appropriate. We'll be right back.
5: I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about.
7: So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash Unapologetically,
0: A-T-L. Here's Don Samuel's take on McBurney's practice. Once again, he spoke to us before he joined McIver's defense team. I tried a case in
2: Arizona a few years back where, by law, jurors are given permission to ask witnesses questions. And I found that it was disorienting because it is unusual. Good lawyers know exactly what question not to ask. And if the other side doesn't pick up on that, that you're omitting a question, you know, and the and the jury asks the question, well, you know, you're out the window on that strategy. The benefit, I think, to both parties is you learn pretty quickly what it is that the jury's focusing on. You know, usually you go through a trial, and whether it's a two-day trial or a two-month trial, you know, you read the juror's body language and you look at how they, when they roll their eyes and when they seem to be sleeping and you do your best to try to gauge what the jury is focusing on or what seems important to them. Uh, But it's all just guesswork. Whereas, when the jurors are asking questions, you learn in real time exactly what is important to them. So, to that extent, uh, I actually found it fairly
0: useful. So, the defense team feels really good about this, right? I think it's an inappropriate uh, procedure on a number of levels. Hmm. That's Samuel's co-counsel, Bruce Harvey.
6: Yes, it may give you a window into what the jury is thinking, but that window may not be good. It may not be constitutional. It may impact the Sixth Amendment right and a judge's intervention into the trial of the case. And by the way, if it's something critical that the state has missed, then it completely changes the fact that the state hasn't met their burden of proof. and allows them essentially to reopen and get some additional evidence. uh, How does that happen? How can that happen? How does a judge inject himself or herself into the trial of the case by deciding those issues and then allow the state to prove what they, uh, clearly a juror thinks hasn't been proven at that particular point? Uh, It's it's wrong. It's just wrong.
0: So jury selection starts a week from today, or it's supposed to. And yet this seems like the perfect case for a plea bargain. But Clint Rucker warned us earlier that a plea deal isn't likely.
3: I think everybody in this room knows that pretty much taking pleas on murder cases, that's not what I do. I, I go to trial on cases. And I fully expect to go to trial on this one.
0: If the case does go to trial as scheduled, the jury may have options other than murder to consider when it comes to Diane's death. What if Tex didn't mean to do it? Or what if Tex did mean to do it, but the prosecution fails to prove it? We could know quite soon whether the jury will be allowed to consider what are known as lesser includeds. The lesser included to the murder charge are two types of involuntary manslaughter charges. One's a felony, the other a misdemeanor. McBurney will have the final say as to whether the jury gets to consider either one or both of them. As we discussed in Episode 1, the Atlanta Police Department, after months of investigation, arrested McIver for felony-grade involuntary manslaughter. The DA's office, of course, upgraded that to malice murder. The police contended the shooting was accidental, but that, when McIver shot his wife, he was committing a misdemeanor, that misdemeanor being reckless conduct. Holding a loaded handgun, pointing it at your wife, falling asleep? Seems pretty reckless. So if the jury is allowed to consider this and finds MacGyver guilty, he'll face a sentence of up to 10 years in prison. If you're a 75-year-old defendant, like MacIver is, you don't want to hear 10-year sentence. So I'll be surprised if the defense asks Judge McBurney to make this a lesser-included charge. But it's possible the prosecution will do so. Even Judge McBurney, in a hearing in January, raised the specter of reckless conduct. He said, and I quote, The question of reckless conduct to me seems like it might be something the jury has to wrestle with, unquote. There's one lesser included charge that I'm certain the defense will ask for, misdemeanor grade involuntary manslaughter. I know, this is as confusing as can be. So we asked defense attorney Ashley Merchant to explain it
5: what they could also ask for is what's called misdemeanor manslaughter which is where you're doing an act a lawful act but it results in something like a death he's allowed to hold the weapon it's an accident and so that would give the jury sort of a middle ground and the jury may not know that that's a misdemeanor because it's still considered involuntary manslaughter so they don't really understand that the punishment The max punishment of that is 12 months in jail. So as a defense lawyer, I would probably ask for something like that because that would allow the jury to still find culpability, still find a manslaughter charge, which sounds good to a jury, but they may not necessarily understand that that would result in most likely time served.
0: In McIver's case, Tex has already spent about eight months in jail. So if he were convicted of a misdemeanor, he might well be sentenced to time served and be set free. But don't forget, McIver is also facing three counts of influencing witnesses. These are felony charges that, as we've said before, are going to be problems for McIver at trial, and each carries a maximum five-year sentence. Next on Breakdown. So conceivably, it wouldn't have been a wise thing to do to have the gun stored in the in a console with the hammer already cocked, but. When it was handed back to him, it may have been cocked, or if he uh, had a certain amount of fear because of the location they were in, he you know, he may have cocked the gun.
3: Breakdown is reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallecks. Sound designed by Chris Basta of Bear Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Billy Gewin, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, who lit the fire that became Breakdown. Special thanks as well to the AJC's editor-in-chief and podcaster, Kevin Riley, to Pete Corson, Monica Richardson, Mark Walligore, and all the fine folks at the Journal-Constitution, plus Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2, Buddy Hall, Josh Gaynor, and our good friends at WSB-TV and Radio.
1: Hello, this is a collect call from
7: Tex McIver,
1: an inmate at
7: Fulton County Jail.